I'm Robert Wade. I'm a professor of political economy here in the Department of International Development at LSE. Um, today is the launch of the Trade and Development Report 2011 from UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development. Um, uh, the report um, has been published for quite a few years and it is valuable um, among other reasons because it's one of the few uh, what you could call um, non-neoclassical or only partially neoclassical um, approaches, interpretations, arguments about the world economy and um, what policies would make it work better. Um, organizations like the World Bank and even perhaps UNDP are very much working in the neoclassical mold and for a long time UNCTAD's particular distinction has been that it approaches issues very much from the perspective not of the G7, the dominant states, but the perspectives of developing countries and in this context, I like to think of this Swahili proverb, until the, until the lions have their own historians, the history of hunting will always glorify the hunters. Um, so this particular report, 2011, I would just want to highlight a few themes before introducing um, Dr. Superchai and the soon-to-arrive Heiner Flashbeck. Um, one chapter um, which should be um, at the top of the reading of George Osborne and the British Treasury is a chapter about the links between public spending, economic growth and sustainable um, debt, public debt. Another chapter is on the financialization of commodity markets um, and this chapter argues that commodity markets have become have come to behave like financial markets rather than goods markets and they should be treated accordingly. There is an interesting issue of the extent to which the price spike in commodities since 2007 is due, as this chapter tends to argue, to financial speculation or the extent to which it, is due, it, is, it reflects a long-term increase in commodity prices due to rising shortages, due to us crossing a whole lot of red lines to do with the regenerative capacity of the ecology relative to our demands upon that ecology. That's an interesting issue that you might listen out for. And thirdly, I'll just highlight the last chapter, which is about the management of exchange rates. Exchange rates seem to be a very esoteric subject, but this chapter argues that about the most, the single most important issue facing the, quote, international community, the single most important issue is establishing a system of what it calls rules-based managed floating, rules-based managed floating, and the chapter sketches um, an outline of such a system of rules-based managed floating. And on the way there, it says some interesting and certainly provocative things about the need for, of all things, incomes policies. 
which of course has been a toxic, uh, forbidden phrase. But this report says quite a lot of interesting things about why incomes policies, especially wages policies, are needed. So um, I want to first introduce um, Dr. Superchai, who is the Secretary General of UNCTAD, has been in that position since 2005. Um, he began his career with a doctorate in economics supervised by Jan Tinbergen, who pioneered work in market-based planning and in input-output analysis, for which he won the very first Nobel Prize in economics. And I think it is a sad commentary of the state of economics that the Nobel Prize Committee today would never in a million years award a, pri a Nobel Prize to an economist working on planning and input-output analysis. But that was back in 1970, as distinct from 2011. Um, Superchai uh, became Deputy Finance Minister of Thailand, uh, then Deputy Prime Minister of Thailand, then Director General of the WTO, through the turbulent years of 2005, uh, 2002 to 2005, including the Cancun Conference, then was appointed to Secretary General of UNCTAD. And the second speaker, as yet invisible, but soon to appear, is Heiner Flashbeck, who I will introduce when he arrives and before he speaks. So, Dr. Superchai. Can I speak from here? Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Wade, for your kind uh, introductory remarks. Uh, my colleague, uh, Mr. Flashback, uh, Heiner, uh, he must be somewhere around here, my lost his way. Uh, he is actually uh, one of the authors of, of this report, and uh, he'll be uh, more adept at uh, explaining to you the intricacies uh, of some of the analytical framework that we have uh, uh, presented in this report. I would try to, uh, uh, to outline some of, the, some of the basic understanding that I have that I can glean from this report uh, that could be very well used for our uh, modern day uh, macroeconomic policy making so that we would again not lose our way. Uh, Sometimes we lose our way by the best of intentions without really going into in-depth analysis as to what final outcome of our good, uh, well-intended uh, policies making uh, could, could result into. So uh, that, that is what I would uh, intend to do. Uh, at the outset, and, and this report also uh, uh, begins with this kind of information that uh, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, this is information you, you all understand, you know. We're still very much... Uh, uh, on the fringe uh, of the uh, recovery process. Uh, for many countries, recovery is only a statistical fact uh, in terms of uh, banks have been rescued uh, and some of the uh, industries have been rescued. But whether they are producing, whether they are they're doing real investment, whether they are creating employment, I don't think we are seeing all these things. Uh, in the United States, the rate of unemployment is still hovering around 9%, uh, where the normal rate should be around 7% or below 7%, but 9% is uh, still 
recessionary kind of uh, unemployment. In Europe, it's still 10% and above 10%. In United States, uh, household sector will take a few more years to unwind their debt. Will take a few more years. Why? Uh, because they have not been doing the savings before the crisis broke out. Uh, they have been actually consuming, consuming, borrowing, borrowing. So their household debts has amounted to something like 120% of their household income. So to unwind that at a time that there is not much of employment being created. You see, people become less and less employed, or they are employed with low wages. Wages have all been coming down in the United States. So imagine this kind of situation of a deflationary situation that you have to save to, to pay back all the debts. Also at a time that the housing price are still not reaching the bottom. So this is a long drawn out debt deflationary process that still has not come to an end. At the same time, you are seeing governments around the world, particularly in advanced countries, trying to adopt what they think the correct approach according to the financial markets, which is to turn from spending, from stimulus measures into one which is based on austerity, to cut down on spending, to cut down on wages, and uh, to cut down on, on, on borrowings. Uh, you can see the situation in Greece. Greece has been uh, tapping into the standby credit from the International Monetary Fund, has been told to tighten up their fiscal policies, uh, gone into this kind of uh, pro-cyclical policies that have been talked about, and look what, where, uh, where, where, Greece, where Greek economy is now. Greek has missed all the targets of narrowing down the budget deficit. Greece has missed on the, all the targets of trying to, uh, to, to, to put up the kind of fiscal discipline and the kind of growth uh, or, or reduction of the negative growth or contraction that, that, that Greek economy should be doing. They missed that because of the, of the process of tightening up their economies has not actually gone into the creation of demand, has not gone into the creation of jobs so that people can have income, then they can pay taxes, and taxes can be mobilized by countries to invest so that uh, because of the drop in private demand, there could be some compensation. We have seen this time and again, uh, more than 10 years ago when I was in Asia, when we had the financial crisis in Asia in 1997-1998, we gone through the same disastrous process of pro-cyclical policies, of fiscal tightening at a time that we have not yet come out of the crisis to cut down on public expenditures at a time that we have not come out of the crisis and we ended up having more deficit. Uh, Indonesia, uh, towards the end of the 1990, was supposed to grow by 5% per year. Uh, what happened was that Indo Indonesia actually uh, contracted in its economy by uh, 15 or 20%. Thailand, supposed to grow by 3.5%, contracted by 10%, on and on. Argentina, same, same process, and yet we'll never learn because when politicians think, they think like a household. In a family, of course, when you have to reduce that, you cut down on the spending. Then it's, it's a family kind of thing. It's a unit. But when a government cut down on their expenditures because a spend, expend, public expenditures in the countries 
actually cover the whole economy, can raise income, can raise demand. So uh, this is the lesson that uh, we're learning. And at the moment, uh, you look into our report, we are saying in this report that maybe this year we would have a global growth of around 3.1%, but the report was written already some months ago. If we would have the latest figures that we have at the moment, the growth rate for this year would be much more dismal than that. It would be lower than 3%. I don't know, it might be between 25 to 3 or even lower than that. You look at the, the PMI index. I don't know whether you track PMI index. If you track the primary manufacturing index, the PMI index, if it's above 50, it means that there is growth in manufacturing production. If it's below 50, it means that they're contracting. There are no new orders. Now, in Europe, last month, August, for the first time since 2009, PMI index has dropped from 50, which is a little bit above that, to 49 now. Uh, same things happen around the world. Even in Asia, which has actually been the stronghold of recovery, PMI index has dropped below 50%. China is still a little bit like Germany, above 50%. Sorry, 50, it's an index, it's not a percent, it's 50. China is still a little bit above 50, but the index has already been declining, declining. Germany also above 50. The only country, I think, in Europe that is, has a PMI index above 50, that's still declining. So what we are seeing at the moment is that the process of debt deflation has not actually been completed. It's, the debt unwinding has not been completed. And that's, so there is no demand coming from the household, private sector, uh, the real sector. The money that has gone into the banking system has helped the bank to survive, but not for the banks to relend the money to the, to the manufacturing sector. So the situation is, is very dire. You look at the, the quarterly growth in Europe, and you will be alarmed. The first quarter this year for Europe, uh, growth was 0.8%, not very, very buoyant, 0.8, bearable. Second quarter saw 0.2%. This last uh, quarter, last quarter, 0.1. If this is the trend, we're going really back into recession, which is not what I expect, because I think people would learn the lessons, because now we, we're just sliding so far to the, to the brink of the abyss, and, if we go on like this, we will go really deep into the, back into the crisis. And this time, because of the, of the sovereign debt issues in Europe. You see, the, the, the crisis was created because of the private sector mortgages, subprime mortgages in the United States. Now, this time, we are seeing the drop in demand with governments running out all kinds of money. So there will be no new rounds of stimulus anymore. At the same time, at the same time, the sovereign debt issues would mean that a large number of banks in Europe will be badly damaged. Because all the sovereign debts of uh, countries like, Greek, uh, like Greece, uh, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, Italy, are in the hands of the commercial banks. And you can have statistics to see which banks are doing what. Uh, how much German banks, French banks have uh, swallowed all these debts, which has been actually declining in terms of value all the time. So this is, this is really a, a, a dismal picture, and, and we have painted it in the beginning of our report to demonstrate the fact that this doesn't have to be the situation at the moment. We can remedy the situation, but we have to actually 
as Professor Wade has said, uh, we have to rethink some of this policy. The first one, the first one is the, the fiscal retrenchment. Uh, financial markets have been wrong most of the time in the past few years. So can you imagine governments still believing in what the financial markets are saying? This is what we question. We don't believe anymore in what the financial markets are saying. We look for the real investment, but financial markets still actually determine how governments are looking at their own policies because the fiscal retrenchment is done on the basis to please the financial markets so that the financial markets can maintain the kind of rating uh, for some of the for some of the debts that have been issued by by the uh, some of this government. Sorry for being late. It's okay. I'm just trying to uh, make time for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I would end soon. Yeah, no, no, okay, but uh, I, I have something to say about this: the quality of the sovereign debt uh, yeah. uh, being being issued at the moment, and the way governments are trying to please the financial markets by trying to adopt the, uh, the misconceived austerity measures so early in the day while there is no demand in the market. And so this will lead into even larger deficits and even larger debts with no end in sight, with, with no end in sight in terms of recreating jobs and, and new investment. So here uh, is, is one, one major area that we have to try to adjust our policies to take into consideration that yes, in the long run, of course, we have to go back to, to fiscal discipline. But whether this is a time, uh, it is quite questionable. The second point that uh, uh, this report uh, tries to make is the way that we deal with, uh, uh, with inflation. It seems that sometimes we become so paranoid with, with inflation. Why we are really fighting against deflation and not inflation? If inflation headline inflation is rising because of the food prices and energy prices, how can you use monetary policies to deal with that kind of issue? Because you contract the economy, whether the food price would come down? I don't think so. And particularly because this report also demonstrates that food prices in the last few years actually have gone up not because of the fundamental demand and supply factors but driven up beyond the fundamental uh, level because of the excessive financialization, financialization of the commodities market, meaning that financial managers have invested so much in commodities as a new series of financial assets because of the excessive liquidity being pumped into the, into the market, nowhere to go, and financial assets in this array, so they've all gone into, into, commodities, into commodities, futures, derivatives, so we are seeing rises in food prices, mainly because of financialization, and countries trying to take a cue from that, uh, which is a wrong cue, by, by tightening up their monetary policies uh, and, and fiscal policies, which is also wrong because they would not do anything to, 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 to those issues. I think uh, it, was, it was Ben Bernanke some years ago when he was at Princeton who wrote a paper saying that the the negative impacts of the rises in, in oil prices is not because of the, the prices of oil, but because of the tightening up of monetary and fiscal policies 
as a as a as a sort of a policymaker's uh, consequential actions on the on the rises in oil prices. That he was saying, I don't know how many years ago when he was in, uh, at Princeton. So that is a lesson to be learned there. That uh, in order to fight against inflation, we cannot always use central banks to do inflation targeting all the time. When inflation is led by some of these costs, which is not uh, uh, the kind of thing that you can address by just, you know, just just tighten up. Uh, we are saying, uh, uh, not on the opposite. We are saying that there must be alternative means to deal with inflation. At the same time, uh, trying to keep demand afloat during the deflationary period, and so uh, we have uh, introduced the uh, uh, possibility of incomes policy. And this is this is a sequence from last year report. If you have actually uh, been looking at the. Uh, uh, trade development report from last year wherein we dealt with the labor market situations and we discussed the issues of, of income and, and wage levels to be linked more to labor productivity. And, and again, this year in this report, what we are trying to say is that uh, we need uh, to be able to maintain some forms of domestic demands. And you can only do that if you keep wage uh, rising at the level with uh, productivity and not to allow wages to be, to be compressed or, or, or to decline and decline, which is happening in, in, in most of the advanced economies this day, particularly in the United States. So here, yes, we are saying that use income policy, uh, because income policy, when wage level are not going out of bounds, you don't have the, 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 the what is it, the, the spiraling effects of inflation when inflation is kept to the prices and not spiraling into, into wages. So this is, again, another approach into, uh, uh, into macroeconomic policy. The third one, I think we uh, uh, raise the issue, uh, we reiterate, actually, we repeat what we've been saying in the past few years, uh, again, the issues of, of, of speculation uh, in the commodities market. And uh, as... Uh, you have been following the uh, discussion of uh, our fellow economists around the world. You would see that this issue has been uh, very divisive. Uh, some economists who believed uh, in the issue of, of speculative uh, movements in the, in the commodities market, and some who believe that this has been fundamental changes, supply and demand, that has driven the prices forward. But if you look at some of the analysis in this report, and uh, it's a flashback, uh, will be able to explain to you more how we're looking at at least if you if you if you observe uh, the influx of new liquidity into into commodities futures futures indexes derivatives uh, doubling in the last couple of years from about 200 billion into 400 billion dollars into, into commodity uh, so com commodity become another f financial asset because other financial assets have lost their value, and so they, people are now speculating here. Uh, in this report, uh, our authors, uh, and, and, and Heiner has also been showing in this report, that there is a, a, a strange correlation between commodity prices and prices in other markets that are not normally correlated before, like in equity, in stock market, in, in some of the uh, exchange uh, currency value. So uh, again, uh, we believe that there needs to be some action taken uh, in the uh, commodity area so that we can stifle 
this kind of uh, uh, distortive uh, speculations. And uh, uh, we suggest a few things, but one of the key things is to have more information. Uh, because when people trade in commodity futures, they trade mainly OTC, over-the-counter. No registration, no clearance, uh, no clearing houses. So we would like to see more information on the physical parts of the market and also on the futures part of the market. Uh, two more issues quickly. Uh, one issue is in the area of, uh, of uh, uh, financial re-regulation. Re-regulation. Because one of the key culprits of this financial crisis, the recession in the past couple of years, was due to the deregulation in the financial market, which has led to the creation of shadow financing that has led to over-speculation in the financial markets, that has led to the uh, kind of risk-taking, over-borrowing uh, by the household sectors, and also by all kinds of, of, of risk uh, instruments that have been floated and ultimately lost all the values because uh, the real risk evaluation has not taken place and people who invest are not actually uh, informed of the kind of risk that they have uh, taken on. So we think there is a need to regulate uh, the financial market as the BIS, the, uh, the, the Basel uh, Bank for International Settlement is trying to do, uh, but they actually uh, have only reached part of the, 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 the solution, which is to ask for more capital to be put up. But the basic issue in this area is how to deal I, I can't recall the term that you use in the report, but this is a, the, 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 the big banks, the big financial institution, uh, the, the ones that actually are too big to fail. You see, the incentive for banks to become as large as possible is driven by the fact that if you're large enough, you cannot fail because when you collapse, the whole economy might collapse. There is one bank I would name name in Switzerland where we live. There's one big bank there where we, all our UN people have their salary there and we deposit all our money there. There's one big bank there which has not been allowed to fail uh, because if it fails, the size of which it's about three or four times the size of the, of, the, of the GDP of Switzerland. So you see, banks like this will always be kept alive and they would have the incentive to take risks and to take more risks and to take even more risks because they would not be allowed to fail. And so the key reform in the financial sector, which is to deal with this kind of an animal. First, you should not allow them to be that large. If they are that large, they must have spatial attributes. For example, their capital ratio must be uh, higher than normal, or their reporting system must be uh, uh, more in detail than, than others. Uh, and the kind of undertakings, the, uh, the activities that they do must be under more uh, very keen supervisory framework, and things like that. And the way they fail, they must be allowed to fail. I think it's a good thing that Lehman Brothers failed. I, I still have this idea. It's not written in this report, but the, the big banks must be allowed to fail because that is a big lesson. But of course, I mean, these days they cannot do it. But in the new law that you see in the United States, the, the Frank Dot or Dot Frank Act, they have put up a special resolution process, which I like, uh, to, to unwind, to, to allow big uh, banks to fail. Last point, very last one minute, is on the exchange rates. Exchange rates have been part of the crisis because exchange rates have been actually influenced not really by the ongoings in the, in the real sector. It's not because you have the balance of payment, uh, adjustment or uh, deficits or surpluses that you see exchange rates being uh, uh, determined uh, accordingly. 
Exchange rates has been so much under the influence of fund flows. And the fund flows are, uh, these days, uh, the fund flows are actually uh, activated by QE, QE1, QE2, all this quantitative easing, and maybe, I don't know whether they would come around to another QE in different names. Or, but because of this uh, kind of st stimulus uh, that has driven the uh, liquidity into the market, the capital flows go into these emerging countries area, driven up the, the exchange rates of those countries and make them even poorer because they become less competitive. There's another form of speculation which uh, Mr. Flashback can explain to you, what, which is called carry trade, that has actually also driven up uh, currencies of countries that are not supposed to be seeing appreciation of those currencies. So what we are trying to suggest in this report also that there needs to be some form of, 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 of new architecture, new codes of conduct that countries can use to determine the real effective exchange rates and they must be kept stable because only when you have the real effective exchange rates that reflect the real situation in the labor market and the inflation uh, situation of the countries in the monetary situation then you can have the kind of determination of the exchange rates to reflect uh, uh, the, the different shows in all this area and try to compensate uh, so that there would not be untowards uh, movements that would distort uh, the whole economy. Thank you very much. Um, that was a very impressive performance, especially when you consider that um, Dr. Superchai flew back from China last night and uh, launched the WDR in Geneva this morning and then came on to London. Um, just on that point about uh, financial regulation, let me mention, uh, and the, the problem about banks having a strong incentive to grow to the point where they are too big to fail. Let me mention that Andrew Haldane, the head of the new financial stability division of the Bank of England, reported in a recent paper that he had a meeting with um, British bankers uh, not so long ago about the stress tests that they, the banks were asked to carry out. And he asked them why none of the banks had modeled, had tried to model severe stresses. That is, they had modeled mild stresses and medium stresses, but none of them had modeled severe stresses. And there was an uncomfortable silence in the room with sort of coughing and looking down at shoes. And then eventually one of them spoke up and said, well, we figured that if we were subject to a severe stress, the government would have to step in and save us. So why bother? Um, that's the point about banks having a, a strong incentive to grow very big, and that's one reason why it's so worrying that so little has been done to rein um, that in. And Heiner Flashbeck, just let me mention before I introduce him, has just written a book, I think it's unfortunately only available in Germany so far, about why and how a business especially finance, has come to dominate politics. Um, anyway, so let me go back to the beginning and introduce him properly. His full title is Direct, I have to take a deep breath, Director of the Division of Globalization and Development Strategies at UNCTAD, or in brief, he is Chief Economist, uh, since 2007, and he is the lead author and head of the team, a very small team of people who write these trade and development reports each year. If you consider how many people and what resources the World Bank has to write 
the World Development Report, then the Trade and Development Report is a really remarkable product, especially because it does not have this, always the central message of every single World Bank World Development Report, which is good progress has been made, but challenges remain. Every single World Development Report has that message. The TDRs are much more heterogeneous and much more interesting. Um, he was, before UNCTAD, a, a former Vice Minister or State Secretary of Finance in Germany, um, responsible for international economic affairs for the EU and for the IMF, Germany's relations with the IMF. He is an honorary professor at Hamburg University. He participates in the Shadow G8. And then, as I mentioned, he's just published this book on why politics dominates, uh, uh, sorry, the other way around, why business <laughs> dominates politics. His, one of his particular um, bete noires, you could say, uh, or bees in the bonnet, some people would say, is exchange rates and the need to coordinate exchange rates as one of the fundamental issues facing the international community. And I imagine he's going to say something about that now. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, Robert. Uh, and uh, I think my Secretary General has said all the important things already, so I confine myself to some uh, remarks that uh, may still be uh, useful. Well, indeed, uh, if we look around, the world is in quite a mess today. Uh, the, in no field, so to say, we, we are looking uh, forward uh, for solutions that could be somewhere appear on the horizon. We are in chaos, in the midst of chaos, and in the midst of a very, very critical situation. And it's, it's really no exaggeration if you say, this is, this is the most critical juncture of the global economy, not only since 2008, but I think f further down the road uh, into the 1930s, uh, uh, because we have run out of instruments to deal with the economic situation of the world. And this is the critical thing. Uh, if you look at the Financial Times today, I think it's only online at, at this moment, then the German finance minister said uh, in an op-ed in the Financial Times that austerity is the only way out. The austerity is the only way out for all the economies that are in trouble. Well, this is, this is quite fundamentally wrong. This is fundamentally wrong and the Secretary General has mentioned already why it is wrong. But the interesting thing is it comes from purely microeconomic thinking. It's the idea if you are a good guy, if you have a good uh, housekeeping father, keeping your household uh, in order, so to say, that's the German idea of uh, the, it's even called a Swabian housewife uh, that is uh, living only at its means, never beyond its means. It never has any debt, but it saves money to live below its means, actually. And this is the model for, for governments. And as the Secretary General already said, this is fundamentally wrong. And this is the main topic of this report, and this is extremely topical at this moment of time, because we're running into a situation, as I said, where we do not have instruments anymore. What happens in the world economy at this moment of time is so critical because we have a model that has spread from one region to the other and it's now more or less a global model with the exception of some developing, developing countries that are still uh, in, a, in a reasonable mode, so to say. What has happened, you can observe uh, the best at this, these days in the United States. 
If you look at the United States, at the development of the recovery in the United States, and we have two years of recovery already, of recovery, let me call it recovery, but in inverted commas, uh, we have two years of a recovery, but in the United States, the last two, three, four labor market reports, the one that came out last Friday, show that there is, as my old friend John Lipsky from the IMF called it, there are no hours and no wages, which means there is no increase in employment and no increase in wages. So the no increase in employment is an old thing. That was, is what we called long time ago jobless recovery. Recover. You have recovery, but it takes a long time. But for the first time, for the first time in history since 1930s, if I say the modern history, we have a wageless recovery. We have an absolutely wageless recovery. There's a nice study quoted somewhere in the report of two American researchers who have found out that all of the gains, the income gains, or 95% of the income gains that the US had in the last two years are appropriated by companies. 95% or something like that. That is to say, workers didn't get anything. So all the stimulus that the government gave went directly into the pockets of companies. So you may say that's a good thing. If companies have profits, they invest. No, they don't. They don't. That's a fact of life. They don't. Because they do not only need profits, but they need expectations. They should have positive profit expectations because they have expectations that their demand will rise. But if their demand is not rising, and this is happening right now, then they're not investing. There is no investment boom. Despite the fact that we have the lowest wage share in the whole world, the whole industrialized world for 40 years or something like that. In Germany. No, everywhere in the whole world, the whole industrialized world. But there is no investment. There is no investment boom. So what the supply side economists told us 30 years ago is now finally proved wrong. It's definitely wrong. If you fill the pockets of companies and they have more profits than ever, they will not invest. In Germany is the most extreme of these cases. In Germany now we have the funny situation that uh, not only private households are saving on balance, the whole group of private households is saving, that's normal. But now we have a situation that in Germany companies are saving. Companies overall are saving 2% of uh, GDP uh, and so add to the savings of private households. So now you have to, to look around, to uh, close the logic and look at the equation, the whole equation, then you see Germany 10% uh, is saved by private households, 2% is saved by, by companies. Uh, the government is not allowed to uh, take on any debt anymore because we have put it in the constitution that uh, debt is illegal. So who is, where, where is the counterpart for all the German savings? Where is the counterpart for all the German savings? There must be a counterpart because savings doesn't mean anything. And savings mean collapse of the economy if not someone takes the savings from the banks and puts it into productive investment, or at least expenditure, if not investment. So where's the counterpart? Well, I can tell you where the counterpart is, in Southern Europe. Hmm? The only people that are investing the German savers' money are the people in Southern Europe. Unfortunately, we're now in a situation where Germany calls these people who are investing their savers' money, we call them bankrupt. Well, this is a slight problem that we are facing now. Because we, ourselves, we say those people who are using our savers' money are bankrupt. So then we are bankrupt too, that's for sure. So this is, this is the situation. And this is, 
a critical situation if you do not have spending by private households, if you do not have spending by companies, and we have it nowhere in the big three, in the big three of the world economy, Japan, Europe, and the United States, you have no spending nowhere. So what should a government do then? What can a government do reasonably? Can the government say we are not spending either? We see what the, what, what, what the outcome of such, a, such an approach is. You see it in Greece. Look at Greece. Greece was forced to cut. By the way, UK does something voluntarily. Huh? The, Greece, the Greek did not do it voluntarily. United Kingdom does it voluntarily. The same experiment in, in cutting in the midst of a, of a weak uh, economy and a recessionary uh, development. So what the outcome is in Greece, we can see it. After one year, it was clear the experiment didn't work. So what was the result? Not taking a step back and reflecting for a moment why it didn't work. Yeah, it didn't work because a, a government is not a private household. If a government cuts uh, expenditure, it has effects on all the other groups of the economy, and it will come back, it will have repercussions on the government itself. So you cannot just cut. You cannot go for austerity to bring down your deficit. It does not work. But the only thing that the Europeans did, instead of stepping back and reflecting for a moment whether the medicine was right, they said, no, you take more of the medicine. The medicine didn't work, so you have to take more. It's very simple. And now, even today, when we see that for this year, the second year, so to say, it doesn't work, they say, take it for the third time, because it's the only way out. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is the way into disaster. This is the kind of policies that uh, Germany and other countries followed in the 30s of the last century, and it will, not, it will not work out. It cannot work out, because these three groups, Japan, United States, and Europe, they are now, as I said, in the United States, it's very clear, in Europe it's the same. Wages are not rising anymore. In Japan, wages are not rising for 20 years. They are in this situation for 20 years. So we all live, so to say, in, I think I called it last year here, like that, we, we now live in an age of diminished expectations. Huh? We have diminished the expectation of private households to zero. So the average private household expects an income increase of zero. In real terms, it may even fall. What is the, what is the result of such a situation? Well, the, result can only be for the, the best result for the overall economy can only be stagnation, because there is no stimulus from nowhere. If Japan, Europe, and the United States go for such an approach, and additionally, they're cutting public expenditure to, in an attempt to bring down government deficits, there will be no export or something that can save them. Because they are 70% of the world economy, and even if China flourishes, and India and some other countries are, are still growing, it will definitely not be enough to save the world and to uh, uh, prevent, uh, prevent uh, a strong recession in the world economy. So that is where we are. And you have no monetary policy at hand anymore. Income expectations are zero. Monetary policy interest rates are more or less, with the exception of Europe and some other countries that have even restricted in, in, uh, recently. Uh, they are close to zero. So, and the governments are cutting expenditure. So the result is very simple but the result is a disaster. The result is a plain disaster. I didn't want to be so long on this, but I think it's extremely important. We, we have not fully understood in what, at what critical juncture we are, and we have, but we have to understand it soon, because in, in a couple of months, it is too late. It's definitely too late. What you see now, the signals on the markets, 
Forget about, forget about the markets and the rationality of the market. The Secretary General has mentioned that. But what we, uh, what we see in the markets is desperate, uh, uh, that they see that the situation is desperate and there's no way out. And if you believe that uh, what people say that we have a government debt crisis, or then I can only say, then if you once believe in the market, then look at the, uh, at the, at the prices for government bonds and the yields for government bonds. They are lower than they ever have been. So how can we have a debt crisis in the world if it would be a debt crisis? Everybody calls it a debt crisis, but it has nothing to do with the debt crisis. If, if, how can we have a debt crisis and the people are demanding more government debt than ever before? In Germany and in the United States, the, the bond yield is now below 2%. The 10-year bond yield is below 2%, which shows that people are, are going into the last secure asset that we have because all the other, other assets are extremely risky. So that brings me to, to more or less my last point already. What are the other assets? The Secretary General mentioned already, we have now an, again an asset crisis on the stock markets, but we have at the same time uh, the same, exactly the same movement on the commodity prices. If you look at the last three months or last three weeks only, you see that commodities are exactly behaving like, like equities. Uh, suddenly we have a drop in the oil price, we have a drop in the other, in the foodstuffs that are uh, uh, traded on financialized markets. And the only conclusion can be, as the uh, Secretary General has said already, the only conclusion can be that we begin to understand that we're living in a different world, in a world where, where all these prices are no longer determined by supply and demand, but by speculation by financialization, by financialization, uh, financialized market, which means that all these people, uh, just as I explained, I think, last year uh, or the year before, that all the people in these markets are just going into risky assets or out of risky assets. And if there is uncertainty about the economic outlook, as now they're going out of all these risky assets, and that is why you see a fall in equities, a fall in commodity prices, and a fall in the speculative traded uh, currencies at the same time. So, but this is not a, a kind of, uh, of shape in which the world can, can uh, develop, uh, even if we would overcome by miracle, I don't know which one, we would overcome the short-term situation, uh, we have to approach longer, longer-term challenges. And the most important longer-term challenge is this financialization, uh, financialized uh, uh, economy, uh, global uh, financialized economy. And we have made several, several recommendations to get out of it. The first one is that you should, beyond the too big to fail prob problem, you should systematically start splitting the banking activities, as was the case in the Glass-Steagall Act, as was the case for a long time, for 40 years in most industrialized countries, split the kind of banking that is normal banking that everybody understands uh, that has a role in financing real investment in investment in fixed income and split it from what is called investment banking, the kind of casino activity uh, that is financializing our markets. This is one important step. And then if the banks, the banks that remain or only the banks that remain should have access to, to, to the central bank liquidity. Because then you would avoid that money like the, one, the money uh, provided by qu uh, quantitative easing one, two, three would immediately go into casino activities, but it would be channeled strictly only into the real economy. 
Then you, in addition, need positive expectation of, of investors in the real economy to get out of the slump, but you have from the monetary side at least the condition uh, that it is possible and you, have, you don't have the disturbances on the financial side. Even then, even then, I would say, if we would do that, then we would have to take the commodity market and the currency market fully out of the, out of the speculation. Currencies and commodities should not be determined by speculation. For commodities, the Secretary General has said already, uh, we need uh, a kind of a staggered approach where we go into, uh, into these markets, first by more information, then by uh, position limits, then by uh, direct intervention of governments or uh, international institutions, and so on. On the currency side, we have made, I think, a quite revolutionary proposal, and let me mention that as my, my last point. We have, in the, in the past, very often talked about um, a way towards a new Bretton Woods system or a system where we have rather stable, stable uh, exchange rates. We see now in the world that we have two approaches. We have the European approach that is failing, where there is no exchange rate anymore, where there is too little flexibility, so to say. And indeed, believe me, we can go into that into discussion. The core of the Euro European problem is not Greece's, Greece's public budget deficit. It's the core of the problem is the divergence of competitiveness of inflation rates between Germany and Southern Europe, uh, including France, and this gap of competitiveness cannot be, cannot be corrected without having an exchange rate that can be changed. So there is too little flexibility or uh, the wrong design of the currency union. On the other hand, we have too much flexibility. If you look at a country like Brazil, we have in the report a chart that shows you that Brazil, the Brazilian real, the Brazilian currency, has been appreciated in the last three years by something like 40 to 50%. I was just two weeks ago in Brazil, and everybody will tell you, well, we're getting into a critical situation. We're getting into a critical situation because the manufacturing that Brazil has built up over the last years is dramatically endangered by this appreciation. So what will happen if they go on like this and they do not intervene massively into the currency market, and this is a big debate in the G20, I come to the G20 in a minute, a big debate in G20, if they don't do that, they will lose manufacturing. But maybe three days from now, the Brazilian real will fall, and it has been fallen already in the last uh, days of it, it will fall due to a financial crisis. What then? If the manufacturing is once gone, you do not rebuild it in a, couple of, in a couple of months or even a couple of years, maybe never. So this is a very critical question that has to be addressed. But there is no, unfortunately, there is no addressee in this world. Brazil has raised this case with the, with the WTO. Uh, there is a, a, even a, a group on uh, finance and trade in, in the WTO, in the Doha round. It was installed in the Doha round. But up to now, I think they have not uh, talked about it. So where is, where is this dealt with? And there is a unilateral solution, clearly. Brazil can do the same approach as, uh, as China, can intervene, can build up uh, reserves, which is not uh, so problematic as many people think. But for a country like Brazil, it's much more problematic than for China because they have high interest rates which is a problem because they have to pay higher interest rates and if they reinvest the money in the rest of the world, they get rather low interest rates. So there's a fiscal problem for Brazil. But nevertheless, in the case of Switzerland, we have the same. Switzerland is flooded by money, not only money that is looking for a safe haven, but it's money that is 
uh, due to the unwinding of these carry trades because Swiss was a funding currency for this carry trade, so it's unwound now, and so the money is flooding back into, into Switzerland. If it goes on, it's the same thing. The, in the Swiss industry will disappear. Yeah, the Swiss industry will disappear. So what to do about this? On the one hand, you have uh, dramatic fluctuations. On the other hand, you have too much fixity. You have China in the middle somewhere with a managed floating. You have countries with dirty floating. You have created, we have created what we call some time ago already a monetary chaos. And still some people believe, economists, huh? I think in the LSE as well, Still, naive economists believe that under such conditions of a monetary chaos, you can have efficient trade, or trade that is something that improves the welfare of nations. I think it's wrong. To be very blunt, I think it's definitely wrong if today an economist tells you that uh, free trade is an instrument to improve the welfare of nations. He does not, he or she, she, maybe a she too, are there female economists in the LSE? I'm sure. Uh, he or she does not know. They cannot know. Because the conditions for free trade to be efficient, even from this very simple monetary side, are not there at all. If monetary chaos is overlaying the real factors that determine trade, you cannot draw any conclusion. There is no conclusion that is justified to say, this is justified, this other thing is not justified. If Brazil now would introduce huge taxes on, on imports, nobody could say that's wrong or right. Nobody has a, a reference model that could tell you this is the wrong method or this is right. This is reducing welfare or increasing welfare. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. At least we should acknowledge sometimes that we do not know. Nobody knows. And so far, uh, talking about the improvement of the trading system is a good thing. Maybe I have nothing against it. But under the conditions of monetary chaos, it will not work. So what we propose is very simple. What we propose is not going back to the bread and wood system, but we propose to do something that avoids the disequilibria that were a part of the bread and wood system. Because the bread and wood system was constructed in a way by Mr. Keynes mainly, uh, to, that, that would, uh, would assume that in the, in the long term at least, or the medium and long term it is right that countries do not accumulate current account surpluses or deficit. It would be kind of equalization of these uh, uh, current account deficits and surpluses. And the method to do that would be that whenever you first keep your exchange rate fixed, and then you try to converge your inflation rate when you're not able to converge the inflation rate when there's a gap in competitiveness, the country that has higher inflation has to depreciate to bring back, so to say, equilibrium in international trade. What we propose is the other way around. We say, why don't, don't we fix the real exchange rate from the very beginning by adjusting the nominal exchange rate to the inflation differentials or the interest rate differentials? We have made two proposals. Both are possible. Interest rates and inflation rates are very highly correlated, so whatever it is. For the case of pragmatic, to find a pragmatic solution in today's computerized world, we could, we could, for example, we could say that the exchange rate of all countries in the world against each other, or against one artificial currency, that's a question of, uh, of the technology that you use, that's not important, but let's say the, uh, the, current, the, the currency between Japan and Brazil, that was the most critical case of carry trade. So you have in Japan, say, uh, half a percent of uh, interest rates. In Brazil, you have 11% interest rate. 
So if you carry your money from Japan to Brazil, you earn 10.5% uh, interest rate. If you do that, uh, the result is, as I said before, it, you will not only earn 10.5% interest rate, but you will get, in addition, because many people do that, and all the hedge funds and the banks of the world do that, you will get, in addition, an appreciation of the real, which will increase your profit. So it's clearly a destabilizing flows that are going there, because the, the flows that are going there, the bigger they are, the more they get. So it's clearly destabilizing. So what we do is we devalue. We devalue, that's our rule, by, and this is uh, executed by intervention of all the, the currencies, bilaterally, unilaterally, regionally, that's not important. But uh, by intervention of the central banks, the exchange rate of the Brazilian real will be determined such that over the year, it devalues by 10.5%. It devalues exactly by 10.5%. Now you can split up in a computerized world. You know there are high-frequency traders that are trading for three milliseconds or three seconds or three minutes, whatever it is. Uh, you can split it up as much as you want. You can split it into minutes or seconds because the interest rate differential is there. Everybody knows the interest rate differential every second, yeah every second. So we can determine every second the reduction, the devaluation of the Brazilian real that leads over the year to uh, the equalization of the interest rate differential. And if you do that, then you have two, you have, as the Chinese said, you have killed two birds with one stone. I don't like that because I don't want to kill birds with stones, but the Chinese say it like that. <laughs> you kill two birds with, stone, with one stone. If you kill the bird of speculation with currency, you kill overshooting and undershooting of currencies, and you kill the huge distortions that we have in international trade, because all countries are then really at, a, at an equal level, at a level playing field in international trade. And no country can compete with the other one by wage dumping or other measures uh, that are frequently used to uh, gain not only comparative advantage, but, but absolute advantages. This is, um, I think, a really, really new concept, a really new approach to, to deal with this uh, mechanism. Uh, you would ask me, you will ask me, so I anticipate one question at least. So what is the, what is the chance to realize that I can tell you? Uh, I'm just coming from G20 meeting last uh, Saturday, no, Friday in, in Paris, the last meeting, and I can tell you G20 started, started with a big, a big approach uh, at the beginning of the year. President Sarkozy really pushed them into, into doing great things. They wanted to deal with three things. They wanted to do, deal with the coordination of economic policy, uh, effective coordination of economic policy. They wanted to deal with the financialization of commodity markets, and they wanted to deal with the global monetary system. In all three areas, I have to tell you, the result is zero, or very, very close to zero. On the coordination of policies, you see, we have nothing. This approach even has explicitly failed because it was an approach and there were many meetings. I could tell you there were 10, 15 meetings of people at very high level in all the ministries or the important ministries, finance ministries, economic ministries, all over the year in the last nine months. But they dramatically failed addressing the problems that we are in now. They dramatically failed, they're not even agreed on one point, on one simple point, that countries that are in recession should not cut public expenditure. Even that was not possible. 
And that is why the German finance minister can say austerity is the only way out. The second point on the financialization of commodities, they, we contributed a long paper, I think a very good paper, the only paper that addressed the question of financialization. By the way, our sister institutions in Washington, uh, for them, that, that does not exist, you know. You, you should not think that their people are thinking critically about it and they come to conclusion. No, they don't talk about it. They just ignore it. It is ignored. Sorry, what is ignored? The financialization of commodity markets, or, or, or even of currency markets, is totally ignored. I was in, in the Washington meetings last April. I was the only person, I think, in the whole meeting of 5,000 people who ever mentioned the word speculation or used the word speculation. No one else, if you, have, you talk about short-term capital flows back and forth into Brazil and out, nobody would ever use the word speculation. It's a taboo. So and this is the third area. They failed on financialization of commodity markets. There is a paper, but it's very weak. Uh, and on the, on the global monetary system, uh, the solution will be, uh, well, no solution, nothing at all. And this is really, this is really uh, uh, in, in this critical situation of the world economy, uh, this should alert us all. It should not alert only the economists, but it should alert us all and should us, let us all think about how we can uh, improve the way that we're discussing these problems because otherwise the world will be in much worse shape next year. Thank you. Um, thank you, Heiner. Um, Heiner began by saying that the situation today was in a sense worse than in late 2008, and um, I wanted to just m make a comment on that point. Uh, in late 2008, uh, we, the world, was caught in a cognitive fog. Uh, it was a black swan event. Um, if you read the memoirs of Hank Paulson at the US Treasury, um, you see that they collectively really didn't have a clue what to do. They were in a cognitive fog. And in a way, the situation today is even scarier because we are not in a cognitive fog. We are caught rather in the grip of pre-Keynesian economics, as Heiner and Dr. Superstein said, in which it is widely believed that the, house, the government is just a household writ large, so as households face problems, they have to tighten their belts, so do governments, and the labor market is just like the market for potatoes and other goods. If you lower the price, then there will, won't be any surplus labor. Um, in 1930, a British, young British economist named George Allen, who became well-known after the Second World War for his writings on the Renaissance of Japan, was appointed economic advisor to Lloyd George. And in that capacity, he interviewed many senior British economists and he wrote a paper in 1975 reporting what he found amongst these economists in 1930, 45 years before. And he reported that there was virtual unanimity, that the way to get out of what then became the Great Depression from 1930 into 33 um, was two things in particular. One, uh, wages must be cut because unemployment was clearly voluntary. If only people would take lower wages, they could all find work. Secondly, public spending must be cut because public spending clearly drives out 
public, uh, private spending. And he said the only exception that he encountered was a Mr. Keynes at Cambridge. Um, so that, in a way, it is even worse than in late 2008, because then people recognized that we were in a cognitive fog. The problem today is that people are convinced, the people in power, that they have the right answer, that austerity is the only way out. And this is flatly wrong for reasons that Keynes showed in 1936. OK, so <laughs> this is not a very optimistic gathering. Um, but uh, with that, uh, let me open the floor. We have until um, 8 o'clock. I hope somebody may take up this question of what the G20 is doing, or rather what it's not doing, and how the G20 could be improved. I think that is a really interesting question that Heine has touched on. So, yes, could you just mention your name and perhaps your affiliation? Can you? Hen Henrietta Lynch from UCL Energy, Energy University College London Energy Institute. Um, actually, I don't have a, a great, well, I don't know, there maybe are some solutions which are linked. Uh, it seems to me that what you say in terms of solutions are really obvious and logical. And like you also say, they've been, uh, or similar uh, solutions have been offered before by Keynes in the uh, you know, 30s. Why, why is nobody listening? Why, uh, what, what's going wrong? What, what's, why can nobody see these? Mm. So, yeah. Shall we do that? Yeah. Uh, shall I? So uh, you well, heard the question. The question is, uh, yeah. if if, um, if it, it is well understood in certain enlightened quarters, um, what the direction of travel should be that is not austerity at a time of recession. Why is this kind of Keynesian type message simply not being heard? Well, as usual, in life, it's a mixture of uh, reasons, uh, in my view. Uh, one, is, one is clearly that we have lost this knowledge. To a, in a very, to a very broad extent, we just have lost the knowledge. Look around. I don't know how many LSE economists are here. Not many, I fear, I suppose, because they do not want to be exposed to critical ideas because they know the truth. And people who know the truth, they do not hear, have to hear anything different. Because if you know the truth, well, why should you bother? Why should you, why should, uh, if you know the standard model, as it is called, if you know the standard model is right, you don't, do not even know it, you know the standard model is right, why should you bother with any uh, different opinion? It's not necessary anymore. This is where we are in this kind of science, in uh, inverted commas. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we have uh, a generation of politicians who have no idea about these overall economic uh, questions anymore. There was a generation after the war when there was a broad discussion about Keynesian and other ideas, uh, but this is gone. We have a generation, and at least I can say it definitely for Europe, but it's true to a certain extent for the United States as well and for the United Kingdom, I think uh, uh, the same, uh, that have no idea about these overall economic relationships. The German finance minister is a very bright person, but he's a lawyer, and I think he really does not know. He really does not know. And obviously he doesn't have advisors who tell him uh, that things are not as they are for a private household for the overall economy. 
And the third thing, uh, there are, as I said already, there are some taboos. And the worst of all taboos, or the, the, the strictest or strongest of all the taboos that we have is the one that uh, Robert just mentioned about wages. This question of wage flexibility, even with most of the Keynesians, and I elaborated much on this last year, most of the Keynesians still believe that flexible wages are absolutely necessary for a flourishing economy. And, and I'm more and more convinced, and we are convinced in Ankta that this is wrong. Because for the overall economy, if, and this is the case now for the United States, look at the data. If you look at these labor market reports, the United States have wonderful data. Look at the data. You see, once you get into a situation where the wages are so flexible that when your unemployment goes up to 10% where they are, or actually it's more than 10%, uh, then the wages become so flexible that the income expectation of people go to zero or become negative. But if their income expectation becomes zero, they do not demand goods anymore. That's for, quite natural, it's quite simple. And then the nexus breaks, the neoclassical nexus breaks that companies that have uh, workers with lower wages would hire more people. No, their demand is collapsing and that is why they're not hiring more people. That's very simple. But you have to think in a certain sequence of events uh, as they happen in real life and it is not you cannot solve that problem if you just have, uh, so to say, demand and supply model as the traditional economists have, where you put real wages on the one axis and employment on the other, then you're lost. And, and there, most of the economists, as I said, even many Keynesian, econom uh, Keynesian economists are lost because they do not understand that this is a, a, a point where the market does not work and cannot work and you have to have uh, policies to avoid it. Why has that been avoided in the past? Let me, uh, Robert, I don't want to be too long, but it, I think it's an important point. Why could we avoid it in the past? Well, in the past we could go quickly through cycles because the income expectations were still intact. The people expected that even after a short, say nine months, traditional recession was nine months, even after nine months, their income would rise again. So they, they went on spending after a short break maybe, and the government could overcome that short break if it was necessary by government spending, by Keynesian policies, so that it would not show up, uh, the, the labor market, the labor market slack would not show up in the income expectation of the people. This has changed fundamentally. It took us 40 years to get there, but now we're there. And this is, is well expressed in the word, no wages, no hours. And if you're there where the people have no Sorry, wage the phrase is no wages, no hours. Hours, hours, hours. No more employment. You look at the labor market report, you see no increase in hours, no increase in wages. So then you're stuck. And then the only way out is that the government spends a huge proportion additionally to get people back into positive income expectation. But this is very difficult. This is extremely difficult. And as I said, I, I do not want to to uh, offend our Japanese guests here, but Japan, it took 20 years, they tried it, but they never managed to do it. Could, could I mention, uh, sorry, yes. uh, Robert, could, 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 I, could I mention uh, something in addition to what Heinrich has said? Uh, two things that are mentioned in this report that are worth uh, looking at uh, to respond to your question. One is that uh, you must be even more amazed if, if you learn from this report that one of the independent audit committees within the IMF uh, in the wake of the financial crisis in Asia, which has proved to be disastrous in terms of application of the pro-cyclical 
policies, conditionalities by the IMF. They have uh, made an assessment and uh, it demonstrates that the expectation of the kind of fiscal tightening policies that would result uh, in, uh, in eventual uh, uh, expansion of, of output and things like that has been, has been grossly overstated. That has not been achieved. This is, this is the IMF uh, yeah. and, and this it's is an independent in, in, evaluation, evaluation of IEO. Yeah, yeah IEO yeah. within the IMF. And, and this is actually even more amazing why, you know, of all the authorities we have actually done wrong and actually the, the, the committee, uh, the, the evaluation committee has demonstrated that they have miscalculated that why people, this is, this is for me also even more puzzling. Secondly, I think this report also rightly uh, mentions that uh, most of the time, and it's mostly politicians, who would confuse between the instruments and the consequence because uh, fiscal cons consolidation is supposed to be the result, is supposed to be the consequence of instruments to reach that financial consolid fiscal consolidation. But what they do is to adopt fiscal consolidation as a means, which is not actually producing the right resource. Because this is, this is the, the ultimate consequence that they would like to reach. But financial retrenchment is not in itself the right instrument to be doing this at the moment to reach the kind of goal that they would like to see. So it's, a, I think, a confu confusion between the ends and the means. Just before I bring in Jan Toporowski, let me just check with both of you. You said that this is not a debt crisis. Would you be prepared to say that it is fundamentally a wages crisis? Yeah, I would and say that, yeah. It's a wages crisis, <laughs> yeah. as, which, and the debt crisis is reflected on top of that. Yeah. Uh, Jan Toporowski, yes. From, uh, from hey, yeah, Jan Toporowski from SOAS. Um, yes, I agree with you. It is a, a, a wages crisis but you would have difficulty in persuading the financial markets that it is so. Uh, I mean, you, I agree with everything uh, that you have said, but if you are going to combat austerity, you need to have uh, not just an international monetary, uh, uh, a proper international monetary system, but you also need a proper system for the management uh, of government debt and I would like to hear your ideas on this. So ideas on the <clears throat> management of government debt. Management of <clears throat> government debt. Yeah, okay. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, let me, so that I see you, it's better than I see you. Uh, yeah, the management of government debt, uh, what you need is first uh, a fundamental understanding of, as the Secretary General said, of the dynamics of government debt. And if you have that, then there, there are two very simple conclusions. Uh, let me make the example of Greece. And uh, if you ask a country like Greece that is, go is in a deep recession, as Greece was in 2010, so you ask a country to cut wages, to cut uh, public expenditure, and to increase taxes. So what will be the immediate result? Well, demand is falling in more than it was falling before. That's very simple. It's simple like that. So the only way out that such an exercise can be successful, the Secretary General said it, is you get a stimulation from elsewhere, from the Moon, or from the Mars, or from the Venus, or from Germany. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. But if you don't get that, and the Asian countries, when they were asked by the IMF to do this belt tightening, 
they even had a positive stimulus. They had a stimulus to the devaluation of their currencies in a rather flourishing world economy. They had the chance. Argentina was a mixture of a turnaround in policies, but also a huge devaluation that gave it a stimulus on the external side. So if you have such a stimulus, you can go for such an exercise. But how can you ask a country like Greece to do this exercise where it is absolutely clear that they do not get any stimulus from anywhere? It cannot work. And this is even known by, by rather orthodox economists like Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Even he understands it. So uh, how, can you, how can you ask the country to do that once? But if you see the results, you, you ask them to do the same thing one more time. But the, result, the, 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 the solution is very simple. A country like Greece with 130% debt needs first low interest rates, very low interest rates. That is indeed, they have certain improvement now, only they have now to pay only 3.5%. That's an improvement. But secondly, they need growth. They need low interest rates and growth. If you have both, your debt will go automatically because that is how you count your your indebtedness as a ratio of, of uh, debt to GDP. And if you have higher growth than interest rates, you, uh, you get it down. Uh, so why did Japan not get it down? Uh, although they, they made many attempts, because for, the, for exactly the same reason, because in, in Japan, they sometimes got an external stimulus, but the external stimulus is too small because Japan is a rather closed economy. So they were struggling all the time. They were fighting. They had low interest rates but they never managed to get back into growth. And that is why they have now more than 200% uh, in relation to their, uh, to their GDP, and Greece has only 130. But you see, even in Japan, 200% are not a disaster. That is the other important thing. I can tell you only people who tell you that 130% are a disaster, ask them to explain Japan. Hmm? Because Japan has 200-something, and the interest rate in Japan, or 10 years bond, is even much lower than the German one, is only is below 1%. Below 1%. So this is easy to go with 200% if you have an interest rate of uh, uh, below 1%, even if you have more or less no growth. But also uh, it's domestic debt. Dom yeah, yes. domestic debt, yeah. Th that's the point. But what I said on, in the Eurozone, the critical thing is the external debt. The critical thing is always the external debt because you need an instrument to get rid of your external debt, but that is not available to you. Or you have the exchange rate that can be devalued or will be devalued by the market. But if you're living in a currency union, you do not have that instrument, so you cannot get rid of your external debt. The only way out would be cooperation of the countries that have surpluses, Germany and the countries that have deficits, the southern European countries, but Germany is refusing any cooperation. They say. Never, ever, they are, they are wrong, we are right, so there is no discussion about uh, any kind of cooperation. Although it's not justified that Germany is not to blame for that. It's as though the German government has forgotten what happened in the, after the Versailles Treaty, in the, after the, the First World War. Yeah. I wanted to bring in uh, Sigrun Davidsdottir, who's a distinguished Icelandic journalist uh, working in London. She knows a great deal about financial crises <laughs> and the response to them. Um, thank you for the presentation. I
Yeah. Yeah, my, uh, I believe in causal therapy. You see, you have to look at the causes and then you try to turn around the causes. So the cause of the crisis in the Eurozone, as I said, and I mentioned briefly, is the deviation of unit labor costs or prices in Germany vis-a-vis -vis the others. There was an inflation target of 2%. Germany has undershot that inflation target. Greece has overshot it. Greece had 2.5 over the 10 years. Uh, Germany had 0.8, something like that. So Germany is even worse than Greece in terms of the deviation from the inflation target. It was a commonly agreed inflation target of 2% or just below 2%, 1.9. So if you have such a situation, there's only one credible way out. You turn it around. You have to get rid of that competitiveness gap, which has accumulated over 10 years into 25% between Germany and the southern European countries. So what we need is for 10 years, wages growing more in Germany, because wages have not grown at all, real wages not at all, nominal wages only very slightly. So what we need is higher wage growth in Germany for 10 years, and a bit lower wage growth in the other countries for 10 years. Then you get back at par, you reach, you close the competitiveness gap, and you can start a new round, so to say, with the currency union. This is, this is very simple and very straightforward. It has nothing to do with Greek, uh, Greek uh, uh, public debt. It has nothing to do with all the public debts in, in the other countries. Look at Spain. Spain has less public debt than Germany, but Spain is nevertheless in trouble. Why? Because they have also the competitiveness gap vis-a-vis -vis Germany. But you see, this solution is not even discussed. It is not even discussed because Germany prevents this discussion. There was a short discussion last autumn in Brussels, but it was pushed aside by Germany, and everybody now talks only about the debt crisis, although it has nothing to do with debt. Um, yes. Um, Jack Winkler, London Metropolitan University. Sorry, I'd like to ask can a you question. Just, just repeat it again? London Metropolitan University. I'd like to ask a question about the parts of your report that dealt with commodity markets specifically. Um, in preparation for this meeting, I've been reading an UNCTAD report from two years ago, which also considered post-crisis policy options for commodity markets, specifically in agricultural commodities. It had a very different character than this report. It did deal with speculation and the need for regulating commodity markets, but it also did dealt with the real supplies. It dealt with increasing domestic production, secure import and export arrangements, increasing reserves in stocks to guarantee against fluctuations, tariffs, controls, uh, subsidies on agricultural commodities. So far as I can see from what you've said in scanning the report, this report is entirely about financial markets. You don't say Sorry, anything. Sorry, you mean the financialization of commodity markets, yeah, of agricultural yeah. markets. Yeah. But not, okay, let me put yeah. it in an aphoristic way. Side, yeah. This report appears to be about commodity markets without talking about commodities. First, is that a fair characterization of what you've done? Or have I missed something? Secondly, if so, why are you not talking about commodities themselves? Or, third, are you going to talk about them somewhere else? Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I, 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 I'm not so sure whether I, I got everything right, uh, what, what you said, but uh, let, let me say this, that uh, while in this report uh, uh, we may be concentrating on the, the uh, financial investment into the commodity markets uh, that has 
evidently driven up prices. Uh, in other reports, in other reports, uh, we have been also dealing with the issues of food security and how to uh, elevate uh, agricultural development uh, to the level that it can guarantee uh, uh, adequate food supply for all. So uh, we, we have not actually ignored uh, the need uh, you know, to, to uh, enhance agricultural development, particularly in, uh, in sub-Saharan areas. And, and, and there, several times, we have dealt with the issues that, uh, if I recall correctly, before, before 1980s, before the 80s, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, most of those countries uh, used to be net food exporters until the time came in the early 1980s when World Bank and some of their, uh, their institutions began to do the recommendation on uh, what I, th I think they call uh, uh, some, some form of restructuring uh, adjustment or something like that uh, to eliminate uh, all forms of, of, of government uh, structural adjustment program. The structural adjustment program that eliminates all form of government uh, support for the agricultural production. So since then, and uh, one, of, one of the glaring examples was seen in Haiti. When, 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 when Haiti actually went over from uh, uh, the, the level of, uh, of tariffs uh, uh, from around, I think, 50% to only 10% or below that because of their dependence on some of the World Bank funds and because of the U.S. insisting on, on Haiti cutting down on the tariffs on, on their food, uh, food items, they, their, their food production uh, was, was totally destroyed. President Clinton, at the, at the pledging ceremony last year for Haiti, he admitted that, that he was in the wrong to have supported that kind of policy. So uh, we did mention that in, in certain areas, uh, uh, there are uh, uh, trade uh, uh, impediments uh, that, has actually, uh, that have actually resulted in, uh, in, in the kind of uh, failures in, in, in food production, uh, uh, particularly in, in, in Africa. We have also mentioned uh, other areas uh, like uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, like uh, the research, uh, science and technology that has helped the uh, agricultural production in Asia so much with the first uh, green revolution and they're now waiting for the second green revolution in Asia because the first one is exhausted already. But in Africa, they have waited and waited for the first green revolution which has never come. And we're trying to do our best now to try to stage it. Uh, and, and research uh, and, and uh, science technology, uh, new seeds and everything are, are much needed. Actually, the whole, the whole area of, uh, of commodity markets when it concerned food, uh, Angtad has been dealing with all issues, uh, with um, uh, the state role, uh, with the role of trade, role of investment, and role of finance. In what concerns investment, uh, we have done a lot of research work in the areas of in attracting private investment into agriculture, into agriculture. And, and now we're adopting a set of principles, what we call the responsible agricultural investment, together with the World Bank, because there are now a lot of interest from sovereign wealth funds to invest in agriculture. So uh, uh, lest uh, one might misunderstand what we are trying to say, that uh, this financialization is the culprit of everything, it actually leads to extreme position. Because what we've seen so, so glaringly in, in the areas of financialization is that when, when financial investors waded into, into commodity markets, they did it mainly as, as a hurt 
all together and in the, in the long position. They keep buying up and buying up future contracts, drive up prices and like that. that, that it's hardly uh, counterparties of, of this thing, not, not at all. So you see, that in that case, that's why we've seen extreme price movements in 2008 and now beginning of the year, the same kind of, uh, of, 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 of activities uh, that has driven to the price. They're part of the, part of the problem, but they, they are extreme in the way they drive up the prices, and that's why it's mentioned in the end. I must say, I had something like the same reaction as the questioner when I read the chapter on commodities. But I think the answer, the short answer is that they, UNCTAD has dealt with these real side issues yeah, elsewhere and concentrated on financialization because the spikes that have come just in the last few years have been so dramatic uh, and they are not simply due to the real side, they are due to this use of commodities, agricultural commodities included, the grains included, as, um, as the basis for commodity speculation. I'm afraid we have uh, run out of time. This has been an absolutely fascinating, if uh, of course rather pessimistic, um, account. And I, I do agree with Sigrun Davidsdott here that uh, there is a very important question about how you are going to get this message out when the winds against you are blowing so very strongly in the direction of a very uh, pre-Keynesian uh, uh, and wrong orthodoxy. Thank you.